not a conflict, but a war. Whatever is happening in Ukraine is influencing every single country. We become refugees not from our will. has changed not only my life, but the life of the whole Ukraine. Welcome to Trumanitarian. My name is Yulia Chikolba. And I'm Lars Peter Nissen. In the previous episode, we had uh, several really nice guests and a very vibrant discussion, I would say. So, Lars Peter, what do you think about the previous one? The thing I really appreciated about our conversation was that no matter whether we were talking to Anastasia on the front line or to Rasmus, the CEO in Copenhagen, signing checks, we were talking to people. And I really got the sense of how Anastasia in one end and Rasmus in the other end of the humanitarian food chain, if you want, were both struggling with some of the same issues, felt some of the same shortcomings. And I thought it was a very real and honest conversation about humanitarian action in Ukraine. So I, I really enjoyed it. I also, I mean, I can relate to that. And I think it was so much easier to speak about the real cases, about real problems and about the perspectives of actual people on the ground uh, compared to our first episode, for example. Um, and to, to, to build on... Um, what you just said, I think what I realized is that this gap that exists between Anastasia and between big aid and between national society and between the international uh, very institutionalized like structured system is is very, very evident in Ukraine that it does impact both sides, both sides of the story, really. Yeah, it's a shared problem. It's not like you have the good guys and the bad guys. I think I, th I think we have we have a shared situation and a problem that we don't really seem to be able to solve. At the end of last episode, we talked about, uh, okay, we've now identified this gap. Let's go on a safari in the humanitarian ecosystem to see whether we can find some new species. That was sort of our very clever and catchy way of of describing that. Uh, but as we have dug into episode three and, and tried to prepare that, I think we both could see that maybe that was not quite the right framing for this episode. In a way, yes, because like uh, I think what we forgot a bit is government as a primary responder for humanitarian response. And, uh, and I'm glad that uh, for this episode, we actually have a immensely strong voice of a very established and effective a national civil society alongside with a government who is still something that we tend to, you know, ignore the elephant in the room. And I'm very glad that we are going to not only talk about the elephant, but also to get the, the elephant talk to us. Yes, of course, here at Humanitarian, we are always very agile. So we have simply flipped around. And so this episode will be about the relationship between organized civil society and the Ukrainian government. And as you said, you went out and found an elephant. That's great. Uh, we'll hear from him later in the episode. But first, we'll speak to your namesake, Yulia Sporic. And maybe, would you like to introduce her? Yeah, Yulia Sporic is a CEO of a national NGO called Divchata, which is translates like girls, uh, which was active way before the escalation and uh, transformed their, humanitarian, their response to humanitarian after 24th of February. Great. So let's listen to our conversation with Yulia. 
I'm Yilias Porosh, CEO and founder of Enjoy Girls, and mostly we work in uh, with uh, women and children. And before the war, we uh, mostly focused on sexual education events and women empowering events. But uh, right now, we switch to humanitarian response mostly. Uh, but we do uh, what we currently do. It's uh, huge psychological support for women and children all around Ukraine. We have more than 60 psychologists working with us. We have mobile teams. We have uh, online and offline support, individual and for groups. We're also very strong on GBV prevention, and we conduct a lot of events on GBV prevention, and uh, we also work with GBV survivors in terms of psychological support. Uh, we also can host with, um, can help with host uh, with evacuation, um, and also, of course, uh, some legal support. Uh, as a part, it's the support of uh, shelters. We support more than 50 shelters all around Ukraine. We buy some furniture, equipment, and so on. Uh, and at the same time, we continue to do our like main things in sexual education events. And we are the only one enjoying Ukraine. We have permission from Minister of Education to do it. Um, and of course, we have uh, a lot of uh, humanitarian support, food and hygiene packs for women all around Ukraine. Uh, and also we provide cash assistance. Uh, so a lot of uh, child care, child care protection, a lot of kindergartens we support, uh, a lot of uh, social rehabilitation for kids. So uh, mostly we do almost everything except medicine. So following the invasion a year ago, you changed your programming and, and developed a much stronger humanitarian focus. And at the same time, you had to scale up significantly your activities to meet the increase in needs. How was that process? How, how did you do that? Like we started, uh, almost we started our fundraising campaign in uh, February 27, because uh, like I was, I'm living in Irpin and it was the first city who met uh, Russian soldiers. And we like, we evacuated our family outside of Ukraine. And when I was in Poland, uh, I, I was in the refugee center and I started to collect money for people, for people in European. And uh, the first support we provided is money for evacuation. So we had a few projects planned for 2022 and we have... Uh, we had money for it. Yeah, I just called to our partners and asked, can we use this money for, for evacuation needs? And a few of our partners agreed, and we just uh, sent out this money. And then uh, I started using my personal network outside of Ukraine for fundraising, and uh, a lot of people supported us. Um, but then... Again, we like we worked before with UNICEF Ukraine, but uh, like you know, it's this huge UN agency. They was they were mostly paralyzed during the first few weeks. So we just uh, I just sent sent out letters. Uh, Hello, I'm Yulia from Ukraine. We are supporting women and girls uh, during the war. Please support us, donate, uh, and so on. And we started uh, with um, small checks. It was. Uh, from three thousand dollars to ten thousand, and we spent it mostly of first months on evacuation and uh, food and hygiene support. And then we started uh, in April. We start psychological support, and then uh, from in May we started to implement big projects with for uh, with new partners, new donors like uh, Soskit Villages and um, World 
world vision. So we we have got support from big internationals, and currently we work with six uh, six big donors, and they support us a lot. And we have a very diversity program, and a lot of a lot. Honestly, we have a lot of resources, and we spend it especially for supporting women and children. Ira, you told us what donors acquire from you, but what does it you as organization want from the donor? What I communicate with uh, international partners, flexible funding, more trust, and uh, overhead. We had 10 big projects last year, and only two of these projects had overhead. So uh, thanks to my previous experience, my connection to private sectors, I have a private donation from corporations and from business, businessmen. And this money, they provide funding on flexible and I can spend it on NGO needs or beneficiary needs or education or something like that. Like as an example, uh, also Ukrainian staff, we don't have insurance. And when I put these uh, expenses to, to the budget, usually they decline. But all international staff who are currently deployed to Ukraine uh, have have this insurance, but my local staff who are working on dangerous conditions, not so far from uh, from front line or uh, anyway, they are unsecured. And when I would like to buy for them insurance, I can do it from Project Nine, for example. We don't. We know how to report. We know how to prepare financial documents. We know how to write. Um, how to write. Uh, you don't need to send to me three different kinds of monitoring or auditors. Send, send, please send one. Uh, or you don't need to send me any, any mo- each month a new team uh, whom I should to explain what we are doing and why, why we decided to operate, especially in these regions and so on. Just, okay, we uh, very open, very transparent. Come come and see what we are doing, but don't just annoy annoy me on this uh, audit, monitoring the, the first team, the second team, the third team, and it's a three-month project and three monitoring visits from three different teams. What's your thinking on trust? Where does that actually come from? Who trusts you and who don't trust you? My personal opinion is that people who work in Ukraine and who travel a lot to uh, and live in local context, they have much more trust to us than people who are sitting in Berlin, New York, Geneva, who have never been to Ukraine, who don't know what does it mean to be uh, in Kharkiv or in Kyiv during this air alarm or bomb shelling. Uh, so when they see what is going on on the ground, they don't have a lot of questions why you need flexible funding. Have you ever sent money back, simply said to one of your donors, no, you know what, we don't work like that, uh, here's your money? Yeah, 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 we sent, we sent the, uh, it was one time with German money. Uh, it was very, very small contract and we signed it. And then for six weeks, we can't procure food kits due to so strong uh, procedures. And then one day I decided, okay, stop. Uh, we can't spend six weeks of my team just for procurement. Please, uh, I, I would like to send you money back because it's just it's impossible. How did they react to that? Uh, they changed their procurement policy. But that's just excellent. It's very, it's very, it's very easy. Because like I have I have power and I have resources to fight, and for me it's not a problem to send you money back because if if it doesn't work it doesn't work, and I don't want to do some some useless things. 
and to spend spend my time. I have a lot of other projects. I have, uh, honestly, right now we have a line of uh, partners who would like to work with us. And uh, now we can choose uh, with whom we would like to move on. Yulia, your story is a really powerful story of a strong voice of civil society. And I bet you're not the only one there. So can you tell us a bit more about like collaboration on advocacy and the policy development from the Ukrainian civil society so that you're heard in the square of international organizations? Yeah, we have quite good experience among women-led NGO or feministic NGO, we can call it. And uh, we we have some advocacy campaign uh, like in small working groups, uh, but also in summer we signed uh, a letter to a big letter to donors that uh, you you need to to understand local context and to work with local partners more. And I know that right now it will be the second second letter, and we also supported it. And um, also we have like mostly it's the most effective work in a small working groups. And when we ha- when we work with cluster system, uh, we also try to advocate our interest in because very simple a simple example is English translation. And most of clusters in Ukraine was conducted in English, and a lot of small organizations they just don't have a staff who can speak English. So it means that they were excluded from this conversation and we had no voice from the ground. And then finally, in six or, or eight months, uh, we managed to push this interpretation on the clusters meeting, for example. And at the same time, uh, we are not so successful in terms of uh, advocating some changes in uh, food kits components or hygiene kits components because... Like, for example, my beneficiary is women with children. It means that when she receives a food kit, she usually have small kids on one hand and the bigger one on the other hand. And then she uh, she could carry a 30 kilograms pack. Just impossible. And we told it to to our partner. And somehow they, they managed to change this weight to 15. So we deliver often, but less. And it's a very simple, uh, very simple. When you understand very clear who is your beneficiary, you know what you need. At, at the same situation, when we talk to older women and they have uh, bad eyes, uh, they can't read very well and they need uh, completely different gadgets or even sometimes they need the ordinary, ordinary phone, not smartphone, but ordinary phone. And when we ask it that we would like to procure not a tablets or uh, smartphones, we need just ordinary phones for uh, grandmothers. It was like so surprised because we you need to you need to feel your your beneficiary whom you support, and then you can adjust. And if we are talking about teenage girls, um, they have different requests on dignity kits. And we conducted needs assessment with teenage girls. What you would like to have in this dignity kit? And that, of course, there were nothing about uh, washing powder of some uh, sponges or something. They would like to have uh, some micellar water, some makeup, some uh, cream, and, and and so on. Uh, but. For now, we are not successful to change this cluster recommendation on Dignity Kids, but we have uh, results of research that if we ask what you would like to have, we have the answer. And it's not 
it's different stories in ordinary kitchen kit. So step by step, we will uh, implement these changes. But um, honestly, it uh, takes from me a lot of resources because I'm fighting, I'm fighting for for better for better solution uh, for better projects. I don't want to do typical typical project because uh, no, we just don't have ordinary people. All right, so there's a lot here, Julia. It, uh, first of all, just recognizing how powerful your namesake, Julia, is. Uh, it was just wonderful to talk to her and to feel the professionalism coming out from every single thing she spoke about. The first thing that really impressed me was the way they scaled up in response to the invasion. We know that gender-based violence skyrockets when something like this happens. And there's been quite a lot of news about the vulnerability of of uh, girls and women traveling alone out of the country, being potentially uh, victims of traffickers and so on. And it was fantastic to hear how clear her thinking was about the two pivots they had to make on one side, scaling up massively, and secondly, switching into a much more service delivery oriented modality, providing hygiene packages, uh, food, dignity packages, instead of having been sort of a more traditional NGO with a developmental focus on, on education, on advocacy. That, that truly impressed me, the way she managed that. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, that's what we discussed. Like, Ukrainian situation is not unique in a way, but it's very... Uh, the, the fact that civil society was formed in Ukraine way before the invasion, um, it, it, it actually adds on. And I can build up on it because it's not... Civil society in Ukraine didn't start on uh, 24th of February. Civil society in Ukraine didn't start on, in 2014, actually. Like, we have a long story of uh, protest movements in 90s, in 2000s, and it was like a constant formation of these networks and of these civil society organizations that actually now we have a strong capacitated organizations like Yulia's. And, uh, and after the war will be won, these organizations will be those who, who will continue exist and who will be working with the government and sometimes, to be honest, against the government, controlling the government uh, on, a, on a many different parts. It's interesting because uh, this Ukrainian exceptionalism that's sort of lurking under the surface all the time, what is that actually? And, and I've been thinking a lot about that because there's a tendency to say, oh, you know, we have very strong organizations in Ukraine. And I agree with that 200%. But... I've seen very strong organizations in all the countries I've worked in, and I've seen civil society that are with very deep roots and playing a, a very strong role. And, and so I've been thinking a lot about what's different here, right? What, what, why is this? Why does this feel different? And when I heard Julia say, you know, let's, uh, let's hope we win the war this year. Let's hope we finish the war this year. It suddenly struck me how much agency there is in that. Because I think most of the other places I've worked in it was not like you could see a, a, an end to things. It was not like you were thinking, okay, give it a year, give it 18 months, then we will be out of this conflict and then we can move back into, in, into get back to business and up, up building up the country. But, but that's clearly what she was saying. And I thought maybe that's the, maybe it's that mindset, that hope or that 
it's not even a hope. It's just a, almost an assumption or a... It's fairly certain. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're going to get this over with. And then we fall back in our traditional role. Yeah. And I think uh, this agency, and it's, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of mainstreamed through the whole narratives and communications that are coming from the civil society in Ukraine. And the, and this agency is that every single citizen is kind of feeling responsible for the successful outcome and for the end of suffering, which for many, many people in Ukraine means uh, the victory. And, uh, and, and I really want to draw attention to this um, letter from the civil society organizations, from the NGOs that was openly publicly shared with donor community and international NGOs that that is clearly stated the problems that we already outlined but already um, it has a very it offers solutions actually on a, on a way how partnerships should be formed and one of the big part of this is basically going beyond neutrality to solidarity and this is something uh, we often uh, overlook in our work. Yeah, it it was a very powerful letter. It was signed by almost a hundred different uh, organizations and a number of of individuals on on top of that. And as you say, it basically says three things: cut the bureaucracy, let local civil society set the priorities, and and let us decide how we want to act in solidarity. And then thirdly, let us tell our own story. Don't define us through your stories. This is our history. This is our story. And if you let us do that, that'll give a deeper understanding of who we are and help us access more resources directly. I think the big part of it was also about the building capacity, and this is uh, something I want to, <laughs> and this is something I want to actually emphasize through the Julia's conversation because the organizations who are coming and uh, they have their own view on building capacity of organizations of already very capacitated organizations, just because you know they did it in some other countries probably, or they just habitually doing it for everyone. Um, and and the capacity is high. The capacity is already there. Uh, it's it's some maybe sometimes actually time to listen to the local organizations what they want to build on capacity, and of course the critical component is time, right? Um, that's what we were talking about last episode. Talkers talk um, and warriors fight, and organizations do not have time to wait for the lengthy processes, uh, architecture, system, and, 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 other, and other buzzwords, actually. Yes, time is of the essence, and, and you could sense the urgency in, in Julia's voice as she was speaking. I thought she was very clear in how she laid out her expectations to her partners, it's around flexible funding, it's about overheads, but then really interesting about trust. And I think this thing of what is trust, how do you actually trust each other when you enter into a partnership, what makes you capable of trusting? And if I heard her correctly, she said, you know, if, if people understand our context, they also understand how we behave. Whereas if you sit in Geneva, as I do, and you've never been to Ukraine, as I've never been, it is, of course, more difficult to really empathize and understand the pressure that civil society is under. Yeah, I agree. And I think like um, what, what is important here is it, uh, the mutual trust, because we also, when we spoke to Yulia, um, she, she, she was very vocal about the in- instances when when they ended organization, when they ended funding from certain contracts, just because they didn't have any face in uh, in 
in actual help to be delivered. And the timing here is also pretty pressing. What I really liked about the way she deals with it is the assertiveness that she she acts with, right? So when she sends back money to some German organization, that organization actually changes their procurement rules, showing you that the things that are often portrayed as, oh, this is just the way things are, we have to do that, can actually be modified. As she took it a step further when she started talking about some of the interlocutors being passive-aggressive to local staff, and that she would sometimes jump in on the call and simply challenge that person, say, no, that's not how we work. This is not the partnership we want. It's a great example of how to build an equal partnership and how not to let money run things. And it's it's a very delicate and difficult thing to handle. I've been on the donor side in a number of, of operations where I've had to build trusting relationships with uh, with local partners, sometimes failing utterly. Right, sometimes uh, failing utterly and 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 sometimes succeeding, right. But it, it's it's difficult from both sides, and it's so much easier when you have a strong principled voice like Julia's on the other end of the the equation. I agree, and I think like if you dive deeper uh, to Julia's specifically uh, profile, right, it's a female-led uh, feminist organization. And um, you have to understand the context in Ukraine, like majority of civil society organizations are inherently fighting for human rights, inherently antagonizing, I would say, government normally, like and challenging government on so many instances, whether it's a women's rights, whether it's a, a corruption, uh, anti-corruption processes, whether it's human rights. So... Her character was, you know, built by years and years of this challenging. Do you really think that she would not be able to challenge uh, some international system, especially considering that, um, let's be very fair, and she was very vocal about it, they have a, a, a queue of, of, of donors and partners, and she, she has this agency and opportunity to choose. Yeah, but it is uh, somewhat more difficult to tell a passive-aggressive donor to go jump in the lake if you don't have that line of other partners waiting outside. And it's that dependency that very often produces those uh, unequal relationships, unfortunately. But look, um, I think what is very important here, and this is what Anastasia was talking us to the previous episode, that's what Julia talked us to this episode, like there is a stream of funding that is other than big international aid. There is a lot of private funding. There is a lot of crowdfunding going on. There are a lot of Ukrainians who are donating. There are a lot of uh, diaspora who are donating. And I think uh, to save and protect this funding, this is partly why this letter of the civil society was written. Because if, they, if the Ukrainian civil society controls the narrative towards let's say, outside world, they have this opportunity to crowdfund. Not uh, big international UN agencies or NGOs saying like, oh, donate to us, we will do something. No, like the small agencies, small NGOs, small or, or big national NGOs have an opportunity to have this flexibility with this flexible private or other funding. One thing I also found really interesting about Julia's perspective was the way in which she's pushing to adapt aid. The example that stood out to me was this business of if you are a Ukrainian teenage girl and you give a dignity package, they would want makeup in that dignity package. That is important for them. She also spoke about how 
food packages with 30 kilos, and that's simply too heavy for a single mother to, to carry. So instead, they're now doing twice as many distributions with 15 kilos every time, which makes it more manageable. And this focus on really empathizing with and understanding the people you serve came across very strongly in what she said. And at the same time, I could feel my old humanitarian sort of pop up in, in the you know in the back of my mind thinking, eh, we're talking about the same money that goes to stop uh, children from starving in Somalia. It basically comes from, from the same package. And here we are talking about makeup. Is that really a humanitarian thing to cover? And, and I don't have a great... Uh, great answer to that, but I think there is an issue around global impartiality right, in terms of, of how much support is given to Ukraine versus to other parts of the world where we also see quite serious uh, humanitarian situations. Look, I agree, but we have a foundation of humanitarian aid, right, to, which I partly disagree of uh, reinstating the status quo that was before the catastrophe, right? And um, I mean, Objectively, we can't compare Ukraine to Somalia economic-wise, same as we can't compare Ukraine to, I don't know, to Switzerland economic-wise. So um, I, I I would kind of um, stand by the Yulia's side on this, because uh, we're talking about dignity here. We're not talking about survival. That's uh, that's a very similar concept, but that's two different concepts. And, um, and, and I really like the point for, from her side that... We know our beneficiary. We know what they, what they need. Uh, they don't need a bag of rice, which in Ukraine we really seldomly eat, actually. We do need something different and listen to your beneficiary and, and be in touch with them because we, we are the same. We know what is happening. So I, I think that's, um, that's a very important point from her side. I fully agree with that. And, and I just want to say that my point is not that uh, it's wrong what Julia is pushing for. It was more a reflection from my side around global impartiality and and how do you actually compare these different crises? I don't have a great answer to that, but but that popped into my mind. But I think it's a broader discussion about the inequalities in the world, right? And uh, whether we as humanitarians are actually in a position to address them. Mm. <laughs> Listening to you, I'm thinking that uh, what's really different in Ukraine is the power relation, because. I've met Yulia in Honduras. I've met Yulia in South Africa and in Zimbabwe. And you have these extremely powerful civil society leaders across the world. I think the difference is the dependency on, on funding. That I'm sure that some of the people I worked with wanted to tell me to go uh, take my money and, 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 and fly back home. But if they did that, they would have to fire a good deal of their staff. They would not be able to help as many people as they would otherwise. And that that just uh, that that's actually what puts such a responsibility on you as a donor when you come, that you you have to empathize, you have to understand that dependency, and you really have to listen, so that you don't just hear yourself talking. Yeah, I see. But like, let's be very realistic. And uh, I just want to have a bit of a <laughs> sober up. Uh, this is a temporary situation with funding. And we all know that, that humanitarian funding are not going to flow in Ukraine on this massive scale for a very long time. Uh, so I I think I would, I would kind of disagree a, a, 
I would kind of disagree with your reasoning in a bit, because, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, like, the civil society, which is normally, again, fighting, the, not antagonizing, challenging government, um, and then jumps into humanitarian response on that massive scale, they, they did it for years and years. They were working with government, but at the same time, they were like, you know, fighting for certain laws, fighting for certain polities. And and it is like a bit of an, I think it's a bit in the blood of Ukrainians to kind of antagonize the power, the big power. Um, and now that's why these voices are successful, but also how successful they are. We talked in the last uh, episode, like less than 1% of aid is going actually to local partners. How successful is she? Of course, what's really interesting about Julia's shift in strategy, where she steps in and takes a more service delivery-oriented approach, uh, starts working with humanitarian aid, is that she does that because the gap appears in society, because the, the war escalates, millions of people are displaced, and the government is overwhelmed. So she has to redefine her position vis-a-vis the government, where previously it was through education, through advocacy, they tried to influence and change, uh, create behavioral change. Now you actually go in and substitute what under normal circumstances the government would do. Yeah, and I think like the picture will never be full uh, if we don't look at the government standing and positioning here, because it's not everything that government can and should cover. And uh, But it's very important to understand where is the space for government and why they're doing what they're doing. So that we, as I said in the very beginning, so that we would not miss uh, the core component of, hum- of, of, of the response to the needs in Ukraine um, before we jumped into any other substitutions or aid system. And I think for this, um, we have a really honest and uh, and eloquent speaker uh, from the Minister of Reintegration of Temporary Occupied Territories, Alexander Ryabtsev, who is um, who is a dear friend and who is heading their um, demining, um, demining department. So let's just hear what, what he has to say about the government response. Our minister as a part of government, our government is Minister of uh, Reintegration, is uh, uh, interacting uh, with uh, humanitarian aid, with humanitarian organization, with uh, uh, we have even the uh, uh, cooperation with uh, uh, humanitarian organizations uh, uh, prescribed in the articles of foundation of our uh, ministry. So we have uh, a few uh, uh, paragraphs which state that we are developing the cooperation with. Uh, uh, mine action operators, with humanitarian organization, with specifically with ICRC, for instance, which is our great partner partner on the humanitarian frontier, and uh, on different aspects of humanitarian response, which is also mine action response. We interact with uh, uh, another ministries who are involved in uh, different types and fields of. Uh, uh, mine action pillars imp- implementation and uh, also with mine action uh, uh, INGOs, NGOs, uh, which are uh, registered in Ukraine uh, as operators of mine action according to Ukrainian uh, law. This is the specific procedures. People or organizations which can come to you and say that I want to help, I want to give you 
money for some projects just give me the information or, or data on what i need for my project uh, and i will work with the solution by myself but uh, in this case we, we we don't work like this but we, we try to clarify whether organization uh, or uh, the donor who wants uh, who wants to involve in uh, his interaction with humanitarian issues in Ukraine uh, has uh, real experience and uh, real uh, 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 recognition on the global scale uh, as uh, the organization who works in uh, this specific t- field of operations. People are listening to us. They don't listen to ICRC and Helotrust. They're listening to us because the, we are the representatives of the government. And when we say something that will not be uh, performed, uh, the people will accuse us, not Helotrust or ICRC, whom they don't know. They will say that we promised them as a government something, and that something didn't come to them. So this is like the tricky point we have... Uh, while uh, cooperating with uh, humanitarian organizations, while cooperating on the humanitarian projects uh, from the side of the government. But anyway, we have a a perfect cooperation with uh, all acknowledged and certified humanitarian organizations in Ukraine and mine action organizations. Let's say a humanitarian organization comes and says, Oh, you know, we we went to the territory occupied by the Russians and we helped the the people there. There were some people who wanted to leave, so we helped evacuate them. But there were also some people who wanted to stay on their farms. There were some people who were wounded and there were some people who didn't want to leave the territory because they said, you know, this is my home, I don't want to leave. We would like to help those people. And so what is the policy of the Ukrainian government? Is it no, we don't think you should help these people stay in the territories, they need to be evacuated, or is it, if they need help, they should get help? These people can be helped only uh, by means of uh, this uh, organiza- organization on their own. And we cannot control how uh, this help, how this aid and support will be uh, disseminated in the territories which we don't control. So maybe this organization uh, uh, has some money, has some uh, donorship uh, means, and uh, they say that they want to help these people, but in fact, uh, this money and this aid will be stolen by the Russian forces or the uh, collaborants which are working with uh, the Russian forces. So uh, we we cannot um, even um, encourage these activities because uh, we cannot control how these means and aids uh, are disseminated there as as i told you there are many organizations who come to our who come to government to our ministry specifically and saying that uh, we want to help uh, your accident victims on the control territory of ukraine on the territory of ukraine which is under the control of the government but when i ask you uh, but when I ask them, uh, what are your documentation, What's, what are your project documents which are saying clearly that you want to provide this or this or this type of help, medical help, social adaptation help, pro, uh, prothesis, uh, uh, some surgical operation help, uh, or some startup uh, 
for persons with disabilities, open in help, uh, they don't have any answers, and don't, they don't have even any projects on this. So how can I know that you really want to help and you are ready to implement your help to these people? The same as when when people uh, come and ask uh, uh, about uh, uh, his willingness and his striving to help people on the uncontrolled territory of Ukraine. I don't know, and any government authority will not know whether this is a real help or just the words uh, which uh, cannot be uh, implemented due uh, to this process not being uh, controlled uh, on the territories which fall under the uh, which fell under the Russian occupation. Th this is not the matter we don't want to help our people there. This is the matter that we don't call with that we don't control processes there. That's why we uh, trying to help by any means to evacuate the people from uh, from that side. Alexander, let me just tweak a bit uh, Lars Petter's question. Do you know about any instances when a reputable humanitarian uh, organization was prevented of working in uh, Ukrainian controlled areas just because they were working in uh, occupied areas before? If organization was and still is working on the other side just for clearly humanitarian needs uh, to assist people to evacuate uh, from these territories or uh, to participate uh, uh, in the projects like exchanging of the prisoners of war or visiting the uh, prisons where our civilians and soldiers are kept, like ICRC, for, uh, for instance. We know that ICRC, they have uh, their personnel and staff on, on that side, but they work clearly for uh, humanitarian needs. They don't have any... Uh, collaboration with that side which uh, uh, counteracts the uh, strategies of our government to assist and help Ukrainian nationals to evacuate and to be liber liberated from the territories which uh, fell under control of uh, Russians. As I told, we, uh, we know the portfolios uh, of all of the organizations uh, from the beginning, uh, and uh, if uh, organization um, uh, has some uh, collaboration with the Russian authorities or uh, the authorities who are collaborants of, of Russians on the uncontrolled territory of Ukraine, uh, they fall under investigation of our uh, special security services. I thought Alexander was really interesting. It was so, so great to hear his perspective. I mean, the first impression you get, of course, is that of a highly, highly competent civil servant. Like, clearly top shelf. On top of his things, he's worked internationally in Libya, Somalia. He understands the mining. He understands the international players. So clearly, just great to have somebody like that to work with. Secondly, just a crystal clear understanding Firstly, of the quality that they require from humanitarian actors. We don't want clowns. That's basically what he's saying. Right? We know who the professional actors are. We are happy to work with them. He's, he really praises their work and says we couldn't, couldn't meet the targets we have without that assistance. So fantastic that we have such a 
great set of actors to work with, but if somebody shows up and says, I have money, let me do something. No, we need to know that you can do it. I think that that came across very clearly. Yeah, which is excellent. I think uh, there is a there, there are numerous examples in, in, in many countries uh, how much harm can be done, actually, by the bunch of amateurs who, who don't necessarily know what they're doing. And um, it is good that Ukraine is a fairly well-positioned in terms of, uh, again, let's come back to the agency, being able to, to, to actually assess the quality of these organizations or individuals or funding streams, right? And then, and then decide which one should go where. And I think what, what, he, what is very important, what he said, is about the organizations coming and asking for data, right? And because, yes, the government has data, but like uh, Ukraine has a very strict personal data protection laws not uh, not uh, more relaxed than anywhere in the, than, than anywhere in Europe for example in, in European Union and um, it is a responsibility of the government to protect its citizens from the misuse of this data for example of and so I think this position is standing is very strong and very right yeah I, I totally agree there's there's no doubt that the government needs to protect its citizens. And just because you come from the outside and call yourself a humanitarian, you can't just walk all over the place and do whatever you want. You can do a lot of harm, as you say. And so I think that professional approach to the people they work with or the institutions they work with is really positive. It was also so interesting to hear him talk about the social contract between the government and the, its citizens, saying... You know, people don't remember Halo Trust or ICC. They remember the government. They 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 come to us. They look to us for for services. And so, anything that's done on our territory, that is our responsibility. We must quality assure that, or it comes back and and bites us later, right? And 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 that's that's exactly what a government should do: protect its citizens and deliver services. Perfect. Which is a very strong position. Um, the key is for government to be able to do that, right? And uh, let's be fair, Ukraine is one of the fairly unique situations of a very strong functioning government that is still uh, in the midst of war and humanitarian response is massive, right? But the government remained kind of untouched since uh, since the full-scale invasion and the people who were in their positions were there for a while or or they have the, the, the relevant expertise. I would not go as far as to say that uh, the whole government would be as strong as Alexander, right? We would have uh, instances that can be very different. I think the situation is clear in the territory controlled by Ukraine. There, I don't think there is an issue there. The government is in control, has a clear framework for how to work with humanitarians. Great. Then we come to the issue of uh, the conflict areas and the territories controlled by Russia. And, of course, this is where, again, he's very clear. He's saying, basically, we appreciate help evacuating people. We appreciate help to the wounded and to prisoner exchange, in particular ICSC, the special mandate they have, the Geneva Conventions that we have signed, all of that he appreciates, understands, and really works with. And then we move into the space where I, as the old paranoid humanitarian, of course, becomes a bit worried because then he goes something along the lines of, but we don't know what you're doing in that territory. And we can't do that quality assurance we can do where we control the situation. And so 
I can't really. He's in between. We can't really say anything about that, and we will investigate you if you do something we don't like in those territories. On one side, you of course that's that's very natural, and and atrocities are being carried out that should be investigated, and the perpetrators should be prosecuted for what they've done in those areas. At the same time, of course, it makes me nervous to hear government speak like that, because where is that line? Look, uh, I agree, and I totally agree. But um, also, we have to understand the position of the government, uh, who wants to be in control of the destiny, you know, on the on the, <laughs> of their own citizens. But at the same time, like I, I would actually argue that um, the situation is not that bad because we have. Uh, we have a history, right? We have a history of a large international NGOs working in non-government control areas back in 2014, and I think beginning of 2015, um, they were they were offices in Donetsk, they were offices in Luhansk, and then they were told by the by the people control the situation there to 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 leave the these areas practically overnight. And um, these big international NGOs are successfully working now in Ukraine and scaling up and uh, and working on humanitarian response. They were not uh, kicked out of the Ukrainian government-controlled territory. Um, they they were actually appreciated and collaborating with Ukrainian government, even after they have a extensive history of working in uh, non-government-controlled areas. For me, I'm not entirely sure where that stands, and I'm not sure how it will evolve over time. And it's probably that last bit that that worries me more. Right? It is. I think what we have to recognize is that that tension is there, and part of being a humanitarian is pushing those boundaries and exploring those spaces for operation. I think I think that's important. There was another aspect that I thought was really interesting here, where you can see the craftsmanship, if you want, of ICSC. He knows exactly what they're doing. It's very clear. He's comfortable with the work they're doing there. They're clearly humanitarian. We do not have a problem with this. And of course, that position comes from a lot of work from ICRC side in terms of mobilizing and making it known to all sides in the conflict because they do exactly the same on the Russian side, speaking to everybody about what they actually do. Back to the famous Lavrov handshake that you were not a big fan of in episode one, but maybe let's let's leave that. That's for me is the real message here is that through that traditional strong humanitarian approach that is based on neutrality, you can actually make a government understand why you are there and why you are also on the other side, and that opens spaces. I totally agree, and I think this is um, something that is. Um attributed to ICRC specifically, as in the mandate that is outlined in Geneva Convention. Because like um, we we, uh, we clearly heard from Alexander that the government is comfortable with the facilitating of prisoners exchange, the government is fun- comfortable with detention visits, um, the government is very comfortable with evacuation. And this is something that Yulia mentioned as well, because there are organizations who are working in evacuation and facilitating evacuation of the Ukrainian citizens from occupied areas. Um, I'm not uh, convinced that it would work in any other uh, humanitarian assistance. So I, I would, I would, I would keep this for ICRC, to be honest. I think it's been extremely helpful to listen to Yulia and Alexander and really understand 
the civil society government dynamics in Ukraine a bit better. I think you're really right in emphasizing, look, these things did not start in 2022. They have been going on for a long time. We have a strong history of challenging government, challenging power, opening spaces. And we will go back to doing that once this war is over. That That's such a such a clear frame to have this discussion inside. And, and I just hope that, of course, the war will be over soon and that, that we will not be seeing a, a protracted crisis, right? I kind of think that uh, we would have another, like, uh, middle-life crisis, you can say, <laughs> when when we will be moving from the, from the pure humanitarian. And we are already slowly moving from the pure humanitarian to kind of more development and uh, early recovery assistance, right? And um, and we will have uh, con- we will continue facing these challenges. Uh, both we as Ukrainian national civil society, both we as uh, international humanitarian aid system, and both we as government, and m- most of all, both we as citizens. And I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a continuing situation. What is important here, and what I heard very clearly from both uh, Ukrainian speakers here today, I think we have um, agency, we have enough power to to speak up and to, to have this control over the narrative. Um, what is important for Ukrainian civil society and Ukrainian government as well is to be heard. So we can't speak into the void and even if we have to- all lots of powers in the world, if we are not heard, um, it's going to be very problematic to to control and to you know to stay on top of this wave as Ukrainian civil society as Ukrainian responders in general. Julia, thank you for another great discussion. I really enjoyed our talk today. I look forward to next week, where finally we'll try to get into the Land Cruiser and on that safari and meet some of the new strange animals in the humanitarian ecosystem. Let's hope we manage to do that next week. I don't think we will, but. <laughs> At least we will definitely still have our uh, open and honest conversation about the humanitarian aid and Ukrainian crisis. And thank you so much. This episode was produced with support from Care Denmark. Our producer is Dennis Kelsen, researched by Caroline Thorsen, and our sound engineer is Agustin Libertorde. If you like the show, let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you really, really like the show, why don't you give us a donation through our website, truemanitarian.org, where we have a PayPal link.